My Seven Chakras, episode 139. There's a suffering which comes from practice and there's a suffering which comes from not practicing. Choose the suffering that comes from practice. The Seven Chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras. And now, your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, founder and host of My 7 Chakras. And you are back to your hub for inspiration, your home for transformation, and your on-demand radio station where we dive deep into the mysteries of the ancient world and provide you tips, advice, and insights into how you can transform your life. This is a show where we encourage you to take massive action and embrace challenges because in life, your life lesson comes after your test, unlike in school where you are taught a lesson and then tested. Action Takers, we have an amazing episode in store for you today where we are going to learn more about yoga. But before that, let me ask you this one question. When was the first time you practiced yoga? I repeat, when was the first time you ever practiced yoga? I really want to know. So tweet it out, post it on Facebook or Instagram using the hashtag My7Chakras so that I can find and reply to your message. And of course, if you want to email me, my email address is aj at my7chakras.com. Really simple, aj at my7chakras.com. And with that, we are now ready to bring you our featured guest for today, Gabriel Halpern. So Gabriel, are you ready to inspire? I'm ready to inspire. I'm breathing in right now to inspire myself. Awesome. So Gabriel Halpern holds a BA in philosophy an MA in health psychology and was trained at the Iyengar Yoga Institute in San Francisco and Pune, India. Gabriel has practiced in 1970 and gives workshops nationally. He is the founder and director of the Yoga Circle in Chicago, Illinois since 1985. For over 20 years, he was a core performance faculty member at DePaul University's theater department. In 2011, he was awarded the Mentor of the Year Award by the Mankind Project. Recently, Yoga Circle was voted the best traditional Hatha Studio by Chicago Magazine owing to the direct influence of BKS Iyengar and over four decades of continuous study, Gabriel's teaching is all that is yoga zeal in practice, science art form, lifestyle and mystical mentoring Gabriel Halpern has been studying and practicing breathwork for over 40 years first with Kundalini Master Yogi Bhajan and then with BKS Iyengar and his family. Gabriel brings a wealth of knowledge and experience sure to light the fire of tapas and get you to hit the mat again and again. Gabriel was also noted as one of the 100 most influential yoga teachers in America by Sunayama.com. So Gabriel, that was a short intro about you. I can't wait to learn more about your story and the advice that you're going to share with us today. But take about a minute and tell us a bit more about yourself? Well, I like the connection with the theater department because my first yoga class was at Queens College in New York City back in 1968. I was an acting major at the time, and the company that was brought in to teach that particular course was very big into sensory training in the late 60s that was in vogue in the theater department. So they taught us these exercises about projecting our voice and doing Chinese acrobatics and massage techniques and yoga, but they never told us what they were doing. So I was actually exposed to it before I realized that yoga was a part of the whole training. 
And then um, my first exposure to classes in yoga was in 1970. I moved to California to Marin County, just north of San Francisco, and I lived across the street from the College of Marin in Kentfield. And that's where I saw the first Kundalini yoga class going on. And I was really interested because of my desire to get away from the psychedelic drug situation that had been characteristic of my early hippie years. And uh, this was a very powerful technique that I sensed was going to move me into another aspect of my own personal growth and cultivation uh, of spirituality. And that's what it did. So I ended up moving into a Kundalini Yoga ashram uh, run by Yogi Bhajan. And uh, the first six years of my yoga practice were conditioned by Kundalini Yoga, which I, I do want to talk about later on in terms of the chakras and, as you said, breaking down the esoteric understanding so it's something that's practical for people. It took me maybe seven years to understand Kundalini and simplify it by saying the energy of consciousness. As you expand your consciousness, more energy becomes available to you. So that was a, a revelation to me. <clears throat> and I just kept going. And then in 1976, I moved to Florida. And that's where I met my first Iyengar teacher. And that was the opening of a whole new chapter in my personal practice and also certainly my teaching, the influence of my teaching. And after 11 years of practicing with senior teachers in that technique, in 1987, I went to India on my first time, met Mr. Iyengar, which I was already in love with him, even though I, I hadn't even met the man. Mm -hmm. That began the, you know, the change that I've stayed with for the last uh, 35 years Actually, you know, 1983 is when I, actually 1976 is when I started practicing Iyengar Yoga. So actually it's been like 40 years in that technique. Wow. So thanks a lot for that amazing intro. So we're going to start today's show with a dose of inspiration. So help us understand what is your favorite inspirational quote and how does that quote play out in your day-to-day -day life? It's a quote I would say from Gita Iyengar, Mr. Iyengar's daughter, which says, there's a suffering which comes from practice and there's a suffering which comes from not practicing. Choose the suffering that comes from practice. Now, why that has particular relevance for me is when I was 15, back in 1963, I injured my back. Uh, and that was certainly one of the motivations over the years to do something to try to help myself. Even though I stupidly played contact sports through high school and college, putting myself at risk. But that was prior to my putting to rest the macho part of my personality. And uh, when I got into yoga, there was a, a tremendous improvement by flexibility. But it wasn't until I started studying the Iyengar technique that awareness of the alignment details and the use of props helped me so tremendously that I realized uh, this is something I had to pass on. So I've tried to develop much more along the lines of therapeutic yoga to help other people who, like me, are carrying around a lifelong injury, something that maybe cannot be medically, surgically improved, but through lifestyle changes can at least give you a handle on how to deal with some chronic pain. And what I've learned is that if you don't do anything, there's a suffering that comes from not practicing. That's worse. Mm -hmm. So even when you try to do something or hit the mat again, you know, it takes a while. This is not something that happens overnight. We never try to pitch yoga as a quick fix or a hocus pocus, some kind of magic that's going to change you. There's manual labor and the tax on the system is you got to put yourself on the mat. But the benefits that accrue over time, not only, of course, change your anatomy and your approach to your anatomy, but your whole choice of lifestyle, which is something, of course, that I hope this interview helps people to move one step closer to, that ultimately your yoga is your lifestyle. It isn't just studying yoga practice per se, or as we say, you don't study Buddhism and Hinduism, you study mind. Mm -hmm. So yoga becomes a practice through which you watch the nature of your own consciousness and ultimately trace it to its source. 
But at a more pedestrian level, the first thing we want to do is deal with the suffering at the level of stress. Everybody has stress. There isn't anybody I know who was born on the material plane who isn't dealing with something, and usually quite a lot on their plate. And I'm not even restricting this to the physical difficulties that people have, either through genetics or accidents, hospitalizations, or personal neglect and abuse of your own body. There are many reasons why people have physical ailments, but yoga talks about the unity of the mind and the body. My teacher used to say, no one knows where the body ends and the mind begins. No one knows where the mind ends and the soul begins. So apparently yoga helps you go deeper and deeper into subtler aspects of your own self, which are there. But for most people, it's like unused capital. If you don't tap into it, you don't even realize that you have this as a magnificent potential. So if you have injuries and you start to make yourself feel better after a while, you don't like that closed down feeling. You like what it felt like when your muscles were more open and your joints were more aligned and your breathing was easier and your mind felt much more calm and clear and concentrated. So that becomes the impetus to say, hey, I got to take this seriously. So I would say that's the first thing I would tell people, that your practice is important on a daily basis, like giving yourself a gift. But at the same time, even if you practice every single day, you're only on the mat a short amount of time. Most people realistically are not going to spend more than a half hour to an hour. The practitioners who spend more time than that, they're in a separate case. They're like Mm -hmm. Olympians going for the gold. So nothing wrong with that. But the average person who's going to benefit from yoga is going to put in a little time, whether it's 15 to 20 minutes or a half hour to 40 minutes. So be realistic about that. Most people's life is very full. And to add one more thing uh, seems to be overwhelmed, but it's really worth it to do it. And yet, even if you do it daily, the most important gift that you take back from that is how does this affect the way I am in my daily life, both in the ethics, in my dealing with other people in social and personal relationship contexts? How does it affect my view of what I want to do in life? I'm not interested just in same old, same old. Obviously, yoga gets you involved in a certain kind of quest, a certain kind of search, a certain kind of inward journey to find the depth in yourself that you may have suspected was there, but you didn't know how to tap into it. And yoga helps you tap into it, not only to improve your yoga practice, but to make your daily life filled with aliveness and vitality. So I love the quote that you shared. It's so profound and powerful. There's a suffering which comes with practice. And then there's a suffering which comes without practice. Choose the suffering that comes with practice. I think this is really, really profound because it teaches our listeners and me as well that we always have a choice because if we don't do anything, that inaction is the worst kind of suffering. You spoke about the importance of consistency and discipline because those two factors are critical irrespective of how long you do the practice for if you do it daily that helps mold our behavior mold our outlook mold the mind and change our life and help us embark on this quest of sorts to find our true self so thanks a lot for sharing and let me ask you this what inspired you to start the yoga circle studio actually it came from reading a harvard business review that made me look look at what was the ulterior motive behind you might call it the mission statement behind Uh, any business that starts separate from the public interface, which is teaching the yoga postures. And it turns out that from my point of view, the purpose of having a yoga studio is to build community, to create an oasis in the city, a safe and non-threatening space where people can come and uh, apprentice themselves to a discipline where there are knowledgeable teachers who can certainly initiate you into the path, get you going, 
help you to move to a continuing or more advanced practice. And then if you stay with it long enough, good teachers are able to turn you into teachers yourself, if that's where your dharma or your, your optimum path of, of unfolding is leading you. So I would just say it's, it's being a community builder and wanting, wanting to provide for people the same thing that happened to me. I, you know, I didn't learn yoga alone. I l- learned it both in a class situation and an ashram situation. Mm-hmm. And it opened me up into the broader understanding of how do you connect to the community? Because once you have such a, a fantastic gift of service like yoga, it's natural to want to share it with everybody. So I love your definition to build a safe oasis in the midst of the city where someone who wants to embark on this quest can come find his or her mentor who will guide them, who will assist them and provide them feedback that will help them transform their life. I think this is amazing. Now, earlier you spoke about the mind-body-soul connection. So what is your definition of yoga? Well, I like to use the classical definition of yoga. It's the intentional stopping of the spontaneous workings of your mind. If you can't find out what else is going on besides your own thinking, then you're going to be shut off from a, a potential insight. One philosopher, Alan Watts, says, just as you have to stop talking to hear what somebody else has to say, so you have to stop thinking to find out if there's something else in your consciousness besides thought. And that can only be done with stillness and silence. And so this, these, you know, if everyone could just snap their fingers and, and make their mind stop and find the stillness and silence, there'd be more realized yogis around. But obviously, it's not as simple as that. That's the reason why they use the word path, that it's something you have to tread or something you have to walk on or something that in terms of a process orientation, you have to begin and, and, and keep going. You're like, like making bread, you know, you knead the dough mm-hmm. a thousand times or conjugating a verb, you repeat it again and again. And anything that has a mechanical part, uh, you have to practice to the point of repletion, like scales on a piano. You can't go too fast, otherwise you fumble over the notes. You have to go slow enough and then with practice, you pick up speed and then eventually you're able to do an arpeggio or, or whatever it is that indicates, okay, I'm moving along. So in the same way, there are stages in yoga that must be done for the beginner in order to arrive at a deeper place. And, and a, a good image or metaphor is you never find paragraphs right away. Just it doesn't happen. You have to have sentences before you have paragraphs. And you can't even have sentences until you have words. Mm-hmm. And you can't have words until you understand the letters and the sounds that are connected to the letters when you see it, when you hear it, and then when you see it written down. So in the same way, there are building blocks in yoga that seem to hierarchically move you from a lower to a higher state. However, I want to make this critique on this because this is one of the paradoxes. And remember, paradox is a truth standing on its head trying to get your attention, even though it may seem to be stating Two different things which are mutually exclusive, but nonetheless. Sure. The left brain is the part that does understand, well, absolutely, I can't begin day one and immediately have a, a realization on the next day. Or as Mr. Anger would say, uh, marry today get and deliver tomorrow, get pregnant today, deliver tomorrow. No, that doesn't happen. There's an interim period, a gestation period where things have to incubate and work. Okay, our left brain totally understands that. However, almost all teachings, whether they're teachings from yoga or any of the other psychotechnologies or disciplines of consciousness that are out there, also say that the end of the path is a complete sense of being in the present moment, totally here and now, in reality, eyes open, awake, completely full in terms of your being. Well, that's not in the future. That's never in the future. That's like when the disciples ask Christ, when will the kingdom of God come? And he says, the kingdom is spread before the eyes of the sons and daughters of humankind, but they don't see it. It doesn't come with expectation. So that would indicate that our right brain might understand the teaching in a very, very different way. Because if the right brain believes that the teaching has to be 
over time through a process, then that means your whole life is basically on postponement, that you need time between now and then in order to, assuming you do it correctly and sufficiently, to achieve what they say there is to be achieved. But that puts it off into the future. And every Mm -hmm. step that you take to embody that teaching is done because you believe you don't have it. And so there's the contradiction. How do you at one level live in time and go through appropriate stages that build from, you know, A through Z, and yet at the same time not be caught up in the postponement of something, but instead be full in your day-to-day, moment-to-moment, instant-to-instant reality. That's what I would call the bitch of the teaching. So firstly, I love your definition, the intentional stopping of the spontaneous working of our mind. I think that's one of the most clear, brief and complete definitions of yoga I've heard in a while. And I'm going to incorporate that into my learning for sure. And I love that you spoke about that beautiful paradox about the interim period or the gestation period that our left brain understands and then how our right brain perceives that very same teaching in terms of the here and now. So it seems like we need to dream big and understand that gestation period understand that the transformation will take time but take small steps in the here and now uh, so that we are not always waiting for that one day but we are always moving towards that destination yeah true so diving a bit deeper what is Iyengar yoga. Well, there's a Hatha yoga, which is one of the the approaches to what's called Kaya Sadhana, using the body as the way to develop awareness of yourself and your your ultimate inner nature. And of course, how does that connect you to other people? Because to be means to be related. So mm-hmm. always this is going to come back to whatever you're doing yourself, how is it going to affect your own relationships? Carl Jung has a statement that says, if you go deep enough into yourself, your own soul turns back into the world. So you really never have to worry about getting too far out and, uh, you know, becoming a recluse or a hermit or misunderstanding renunciation in such a way that it takes you out of contact with your loved ones in your daily life. That's not really true. So Mr. Iyengar is a person who made a Herculean effort in his life to explore yoga asana and find the connections and the parallels to it to the rest of yoga, whereas many people see yoga as a hierarchical system that begins with ethics, goes to body postures, breath control, relaxation, and then successive stages of meditation till you reach one of the yoga words that implies enlightenment or realization. Samadhi would be one word they use, or moksha, liberation, or kaivalya, isolation of consciousness from its contents. So that sounds so abstruse. He was able to bring it down to the body and show you how, through the use of the asanas, it's not just a handmaiden or a a stepping stone to something higher, but the whole understanding of yoga can be embodied in the correct approach to asana. But more important than that was just being in the presence of of somebody who's like so on fire, such a Mm. living embodiment of what uh, the teaching is trying to get across. It's an unforgettable experience. But the thing is, when you're in the presence of the master, like any true initiation, a lot of fear comes up. You don't know what's about to happen next. You're really Mm -hmm. out of control. But you're so focused on what's going on that if it's your good fortune, your life karma to end up in the presence of the master, believe me, you're totally in what we call living absorption. You are nowhere else. You're not in the past. You're not in the future. You're not thinking about your age. You're not thinking about your gender. You're not thinking about your 401k. All you're thinking about is, I am totally focused on whatever the master says. I'm going to do my best to try to embody that. And then you get a transmission. It's called Shaktipat. Something like an electroplating flow it. An arcing happens between you and the master. And after all those years of study or reading and realizing or, or thinking that, gee, I heard that there's a power, right? But you think it's outside of yourself. And then through the, the grace of the master, you realize it's in me. I'm discovering the potential. It's in me. 
And that, you know, takes you on a whole other thing where then you, of course, revere your master for the rest of your life, whether they're embodied or not, because they're the one who helped you realize this. But yeah, it just develops a tremendous amount of humility and not arrogance because you realize this potential is in every human being. We, out of compassion, we want the people who are suffering to awaken to their own potential and then go help other people, which is usually how the path is. Like a lit candle gets it from an, an unlit candle, gets it from a lit candle, wow. and then go thou and do likewise. So... Mr. Anger just represents a person to me whose commitment to practice and to the art form is so impeccable that if you're lucky enough to have a model in your life, uh, then you want to say, okay, I want to be as close to that as I can. I'm not going to be a clone of that. Mm. Uh, I'm going to be my own person, but still I'm going to revere the guidance and, um, and the memory of somebody who got me on fire and taught me how to stay on fire. Uh, so, you know, what can I, Mr. Iyengar, you know, who's voted one of the hundred most influential people of last century, his personal practice and has, has influenced thousands of teachers and literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, of people across the planet, because he's not limited, certainly, to the huge following in the United States, but he's, he's a worldwide figure. There's Iyengar centers all over the world. So that's an indication of his influence uh, in terms of his shakti or his power to uh, transmit what he knows, even though uh, we only got a small amount, even though he's teaching for like 70 or 80, we only got a small amount of mm-hmm. the depth of what the man had to had to share with us. You know, there's an interesting quote from the Buddha who picks up a bunch of leaves in his hand and then says to the monks and nuns, uh, are there more leaves in my hand or more leaves in the forest? And they all say, oh, more leaves in the forest, sir. He says, well, what I know compared to what I'm teaching you is the leaves in the forest compared to the leaves in my hand. Yet still, just the leaves in my hand are enough to get you liberated. So that's what I feel like. You know, maybe I only got crumbs from the master's table, but those crumbs have served me and literally thousands of students over the year. Um, I don't need to have, you know, to know how much wine there is in the tavern to get drunk. So (laughs) thankfully enough. I got a little taste, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And uh, all of his things, teaching you how to modify poses for people who have limitations, the invention of props to help give access to people who are in a post-operative condition or in an aged or weakened condition that they can't do the poses independently, getting women involved, doing Mm. demonstrations in school, uh, so many things that were revolutionary and unique to his bringing yoga to both India and the West. And, you know, other than that, he's just an inspiration in terms of, uh, is he solid? Do I have to worry about when he was alive, will he be practicing tomorrow? Or is he too lazy, like, you know, give yourself a day off? No, no, totally on fire. And when you know there's one human being, one, one adult in the world, one mature personality in the world who you can project that kind of faith on, that does wonders for inspiring yourself to be an embodiment of, of your own understanding of spirit. And then whoever you come in contact with, something is going to rub off. You know, the mind at peace finds its way of affecting its environment. So on the same topic, you learned and practiced yoga at the foot of the master BKS Iyengar in Pune, India. Going back in time, what was the entire experience like living in India, a new culture, living with a master, learning new skills? Loved it. First of all, the uh, the people who had been there before had left, uh, you know, intro to Pune, you know, intro to the institute. Oh, okay. You know, so you had a little sense of like, you know, how to be smart in terms of what to eat and, uh, you know, where to where to live the first time that you're there. So I was very, very fortunate that, uh, you know, I took precautions and, and, and didn't get sick in terms of eating food that sometimes if you're not uh, used to the kind of dal and uh, 
you know, some of the maybe bacteria even in the water till your body gets accustomed to it. If you if you start off with some kind of stomach ailment, believe me, it's it's not a good thing to be there when all your hopes were like, I'm coming here, you know, in a great state of health and I'm going to get even healthier. So that was very, very helpful to have some prior information from the people who had gone before. In the, India is a fantastic place, uh, especially for yogis, because it's still in America, even though there's maybe 18 million people, they say, according to Yoga Journal, probably much more, doing yoga. Uh, the respect that you get for doing yoga in the United States is kind of not the same as people in India. Even if they're not practicing yoga, they recognize that you're here honoring our ancient culture. Uh, I felt so welcomed and so warm. Uh, Indian people, to me, were extremely chatty, very, very politically aware. Uh, and being from New York City originally myself, uh, I'm already used to having a, a diversity of cultures mm-hmm. and uh, having everybody have an opinion from, you know, the, the taxi cab driver to like, you know, the, the head magistrate. Everybody has an opinion. So a very, very interesting place both to speak to people, get to know people. The culture in Pune was fantastic to uh, go to different concerts and be involved in uh, not just soccer, but uh, Cricket, you know, to learn about cricket, things like that. (laughs) Being exposed to Indian culture that way was fantastic. Uh, You know, we we also took upon ourselves to visit various museums and temples. So that whole cultural experience, in addition to the yoga, was just an injection of of, uh, learning about it firsthand instead of reading about it. And uh, so that was fantastic. And then now you get to the Institute. you know, it's such an international cavalcade of stars. You know, there are people like yourself, like-minded from all over the world. And that in itself is just a fantastic bunch of friends to make for life and uh, and learn from them in their practice. And then, you know, you take your, your assigned classes the first time you're there. And uh, I was still fortunate to uh, be there when, when they were still doing teacher trainings um, for the international um, teachers. And so, um, although the trainings were taught by Gita and Prashant, the son, Mr. Iyengar comes into every class and interrupts. There's no way that uh, he can watch what's going down without something in him getting incensed about it. It's not being transmitted the right way. Uh-huh. Of course, to be in the presence of, of, of a person who can take over in an instant, and of course, the moment he walks in the room, every eye goes to him, you can feel the, the presence of the man, mm-hmm. and of course, Gita and Prashant surrender immediately, and he'll go on a tirade for something and give you some Dharma talk while he's doing it, and then elucidate some of the fine points. And of course, one of the greatest things about it being a master, he's not an armchair quarterback. He's an acharya. And that means not only he is like a PhD pundit in yoga philosophy, but he can show you in his body, not just say to somebody else more flexible, okay, you do the pose. No, no, no. He's able to show you right on his body. So it's remarkable that he can both theoretically tell you what to do, but practically show you how to do it. And then depending on the body type in front of him, the student, the age, whatever, show you how to modify the pose to make it more improved and of course pain-free on the person who's the demonstration model. So that's a tour de force of teaching, which I guess there are other teachers who may do that in different fields as well, but certainly to be in the presence of a master who can do that, that's unforgettable. I would say, though, the biggest impact on me had to do with attending and uh, eventually assisting in the medical classes. I have to admit that as I believe my teacher was a, a rebel in his own way, even though he was a traditionalist in another way, I feel like I was a rebel in my way, even though I've tried to follow the tradition as well, in that I remember when he, this was before there was any uh, certification 
in the teachers uh, in the Ayengar tradition, the, the organization didn't develop till years later, but he would say, don't take on any therapeutic classes unless you've you know, achieved a certain level of depth. And I, I never said it to him. I was always saying in my own mind, you're not talking to me, though. You're talking to other people <laughs> who are going to be frightened off by what you're saying. And, and well, well, they should be because they don't feel confident enough in themselves. But because I had the back injury, because I had been help, I said, but you're not talking to me. So I have to admit, um, I never really listened to him <laughs> that way. I just kept on studying and it just didn't make any sense to me to try to send people from Chicago to somebody who was senior to me 150 miles away. Uh, I'm sorry, out of compassion, you have to teach what you know to the people around you, even if that sometimes gets you in trouble with the hierarchy. But that's how it was. So I love that. And, you know, Gita Ayengar has a very different style. All three of them, the Ayengars, have very, very different styles. Um, sure. Mr. Ayengar is so knowledgeable that when he shares one thing going to one side, when you do it bilaterally to the other side, he has tons of other details uh, just amazing his his a fount of knowledge. Gita tends to be the kind of student uh, teacher who hammers home the same point and repeats it again and again uh, and makes you go deeper. And, and by looking at it again, you get something even though you thought that I heard you the third time. But by the seventh time, all of a sudden, <laughs> you realize, OK, I get what she's saying. Just, you know, do it, do it, do it. And you're going to have a breakthrough. Prashant is probably the one who has the greatest English vocabulary range. Not that Mr. Angor or Gita aren't fluent in English, even though Marathi and, and Hindi are, are more their, their basic um, natural languages. But Prashant seemed to have the widest vocabulary, and uh, he was much more uh, metaphoric in his use of, uh, of insights than the Iyengar. But they're all brilliant in different ways. And, uh, you know, you get a chance to study with each of them uh, during your course of study there. And, of course, you want to also sit in on as many classes as you can, take as many notes as you can, even yeah. though they're just to watch them practice and learn tips about how they arrange themselves. So all of that was going on in India, uh, as well as the fact that in Pune, especially, there was the Osho Ashram, which mm -hmm. uh, for those who might remember who Bhagavan Sri Rajneesh was, which is another really interesting international scene of people coming and practicing yoga in a very, very different form. And and they're also noted for having restaurants, not that you didn't want to eat Indian food, but they had restaurants that were more Western-oriented, so that, you know, people who were, for whatever reason, wanted variations on it, you could get your soy burgers and fresh-squeezed carrot juice and, and just things that you wouldn't expect it would be uh, on the Indian menu. So that was nice to have in Pune as well. So again, you can see a very, very positive experience. And then when I returned to Pune in the, uh, in the future, I learned again from having been there the first time, you don't have to stay at the local hotel and be safe you can uh, find a local family to stay with. And so there's a network to connect you to an Indian family. And that, again, is another in-depth experience to be living with people um, who, again, take you in so warmly and are so pro-yoga. Um, that was another mind-boggling experience. And then once you do that a few times, then you're ready to say, okay, now I'm going to take my own apartment and I'm going to even find a way to hire somebody to give a job to somebody while I'm there for six weeks or whatever to come and cook for me and stuff like that and make it really easy on yourself. Another yeah. level of just uniting with the culture and supporting the local economy. So, well, you know, I'm just very fortunate. All those things worked for me. Um, I traveled around India and, and went to live in a, in a houseboat up in Kashmir, which was another incredible trekking and uh, both a visual experience that was phenomenal and an, another embracing a, a broader part of India, because I like to say India is not just a country, it's a subcontinent. 
There's mm-hmm. so much there. So again, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to say I never got sick. I only had good experiences. I never got ripped off. And, um, you know, I can't deny that every country has things that people, you know, it goes wrong. They lose their luggage. They miss their flight. People sure. are rude to them, whatever. But I, I can say, you know, fortunately, my experience in, in India has been really good karma. So... You know, I loved it. Wonderful. So side note, I did my undergrad in Pune and that city is something different altogether. It's called the Oxford of the East for knowledge, learning and, and wisdom of all kinds. So I loved my experience when I was in Pune. Now I was going through your Yoga You course page for the course called Yoga Mentoring Conscious Aging. And I stumbled upon a sentence that was really, really profound, which states that we do not have a choice about becoming older, but we do have a choice about becoming an elder. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. An elder is like taking a second birth. You know, most of the initiatory disciplines of of the ancient world and the primal peoples had a rite of passage to enable a young boy or young girl to step up into their role as an adult. But a lot of times we don't realize that you don't only go through one ritual initiation. One's whole life gives you opportunities for various ritual initiations. And especially in the United States that I grew up in, I was from a generation that we had a phrase, we didn't trust anybody over 30. We felt Mm -hmm. that in a certain way, the post-World War II generation and the uh, early 60s had aspects of the way the government was conducting its business that was much more shadowy and not really in, in line with those of us who were educated by a the post-World War II uh, boom learned. And I think this was a shock to realize uh, a lot of the older people in the United States don't have the finger on the pulse of what's really going on. It was mm-hmm. almost like, you know, uh, there was no older person to turn to because they all seemed to be co-opted by the system. So, uh, but then, as, as I realized, because I had one teacher who said to me, well, now you're almost 30 years old. What are you going to do? You're not going to trust anybody? You're, th- you're 30 yourself. You better start mm-hmm. learning about aging process and hanging out with people who are not just young. So that began a whole process in my life of of um, getting involved in hospice and uh, moving to Miami where I could learn to work with an older population. Now, as a result of that, that started building in my mind different ideas about where is my own aging process leading. And, of course, yoga has the idea of the guru, which represents a, a, you know, a venerable person, a revered person, a sage-like yeah. person who's usually not young, somebody who's been doing this for many, many years. So their level of competence or their level of the trust that you can bring to somebody whose track record is so clear. But in the United States, we don't think about teachers and older people the same way that they project a almost divine infallibility upon the guru. Yeah, so true. I realize that there are different teachings. And, and again, I, I might be like rambling here a little bit to try to connect a number of the dots. But through the years, of course, I started studying fairy tales. And fairy tales turn out to be not only like uh, bedtime stories for the nursery for the kids, but there are fairy tales for the middle years and then fairy tales for the older years which I didn't realize at the time. And then I realized, obviously, they're trying to give people the same kind of clues that you might give a young initiate in the rite of passage from prepubescence and early adolescence to young man and womanhood. Now they're trying to tell you, well, there are other things you need to pay attention to once your kids have grown or once you're so old that now you're facing your mortality. And that really perked me up. And and then that was also connected to uh, work in what I would call the men's field, men trying to become more conscious. Um, I don't know if I would say that there's a men's movement that's similar to the way we define feminism, but in its own way, in the um, 80s, a whole new shift came about in terms of gender consciousness, which shifted me away from the uh, spiritual 
idea of egolessness, which in a certain way made me transcend my whole sense of gender to realizing maybe I'm missing something by not going deeper into my understanding of why did I incarnate as a man this time. And so by studying the teachings of the mature masculine, that also brought back to me the idea, well, who's going to give you a model of mature masculinity? Not a young boy, not even a young adult, but somebody who's been doing this for decades. And we can now, now we're entering the, the area of what I might call the, the sage or the wisdom figure or the healer or so many words that represent the part of one's psyche where a certain kind of teaching transmission happens from somebody who's a past master and knows it and then they're going to pass it on and fire up another person to get ready for what they have to face. So all those things kind of coalesce together with the idea that elders have always been around, wisdom people have always been around, but they're not people who always hang out their shingle. They're not like people out there trying to make a living out of this. They're mm -hmm. people who have to be sought and people who have to be apprenticed to, which means in a certain way, you have to have the humility of realizing, I know something's missing in my life, I'm not sure what it is. And then you locate it in some person or some ideal or some power place. And then you have to go there to imbibe it and have it transmitted to you. And then you begin your apprenticeship in earnest, which means you, you're on that path, that left brain path, I said. But at the same time, you're realizing you're practicing the joy. You're not you're not identified with the struggle of existence and, and your ego story. You're identified with the joy of being because being involved in this path in some way is a tremendously positive and optimistic thing. So the elder, just something as you get older, you realize that everyone's going to change in terms of their body losing certain um, capacities or uh, limitations that happen as a result of you know, your genetics or, you know, your, they hire somebody younger than you who's faster than you and willing to do it for less money. All those things that might be problems of a person losing their grip just when you feel like you understand what's happening now, you're kind of being phased out. But the elder is not about that. The elder is not about retiring. The elder is about recognizing the responsibility they have to pass on what they got when somebody paid it forward to them. And so you take an active interest in the lifestyle of younger men and women. And that's one of the things I learned from one of my mentors. First, if you're an elder, part of being an elder is to never let a day go by where you don't find a way to praise, compliment, recognize, confirm, appreciate, or what I would like to say, bless a younger man, a younger woman, so they can realize that you have seen them. You have seen that magnificent potential they have. You want wow. them to get on fire with that and not be think small. No one comes here to live a small life. And it has nothing to do with what the outside of your life looks like or whether or not you make a mark on history or become famous. Rumi has a poem that says, no outer work can be great if your inner work is small. And no outer work can be small if your inner work is great. So it doesn't matter what it looks like in the eyes of other people. You've got to get on fire for doing your own work. And then sparks are going to fly and something you're going to give something back to people. So as an elder, you can do things to take an initiation to become more aware of the potency of your own aging process and how you can pass along your life wisdom, your tips, your guidance to people coming after you. And um, you take that as seriously as, as people take getting up and going to work every single day uh, seriously. you got to work in the invisible as, as intensely as you work in the visible. And um, one of the ways that you know it if you're an older person, and remember, you don't have to be 60 or 70 to start being an elder or a mentor for people mm -hmm. who are a generation or two younger than you. You know, your guitar teacher is usually only 25 and you're 12. You know, it's not like you'd have to have a guitar teacher 75 teaching you. No. But the thing you got to ask yourself 
to understand if you need to get this coaching yourself is when was the last time you looked at a younger man and a younger woman without envy, without jealousy, but saw how beautiful they were and said, you know, you got it, you know, whatever it was. I love the way you sing. I love the way you dress. I love the way you order your life or make your pasta sauce or whatever. Any kind of compliment to make them see they're seen. Somebody confirms their existence. In yoga, that's called darshan. You get the Mm. view of the guru. And just because the guru looks at you, it confers a sense of reality on you. The $200 psychological word is called the constituent glance of being. Somehow, because they saw you, you're more real. So that's it. You need somebody to punch your ticket and recognize you. And uh, I ask people, when was the last time you did it? If you can't even remember, that means you're probably suffering from hunger significance yourself. And you need someone to look at you and what I call body and fender repair and say, hey, you got And you need to get enough of that like spiritual vitamins in the form of the acknowledgement in order for you to go down and do likewise. So taking on eldering and and mentoring younger generation has has taken up a significant portion of my uh, teaching and approach both in and outside of the class. And uh, again, the ultimate eldering is you also have to prepare yourself to face your own mortality. And so whether it's teaching people not only just your craft, but how you age how you deal with illness, how you deal with uh, losing people in uh, one's life, ultimately, you know, dropping your own body. Those are all teachings that elders can give. But uh, you don't do that just by snapping your fingers. You have to prepare yourself like you did in any other craft. So that's what I would say about eldering. Well, thanks a lot for sharing those powerful stories, those powerful insights. Based on what we've learned today, if you had to advise one of your students to go out and takes one action, just one action to enhance the quality of their life. What would that one action be? All right. So I'm going to give it like a, a final like yogic, yogic shot across the bow to make the point. According wow. to the yoga <clears throat> sutras, there's a definition of, ha- of Kriya Yoga, which is called Tapas, Swadhyaya and Ishvara Pranidhan. Tapas is the action-oriented part of the path. Swadhyaya is the study intellectually of the path. And Ishvara Pranidhan is the surrender to the heart space in the path. Basically, when you practice yoga, what you realize is you're doing a, the gym, the temple, and the university all at the same time. So what I would suggest for a new person is to be honest in terms of what is your natural leaning? What is your natural inclination? What is the way your gradient is? You know, just like a road is curved in a certain angle or, or direction of degree. Krishna says no one can deny their own nature. So what is your own nature? And if your own nature is an action-oriented person, then find any discipline that gets you moving, that gets you into your body and take mm-hmm. action that way. If you're a studious kind of person and, you know, reading or psychological, uh, you know, um, psychotherapy or discoursing is your cup of tea. Then immerse yourself in the literature. There's tons of books out there by yoga masters and and people in other fields that are psychologically astute. Many men and women have left uh, very, very articulate expositions of the path. And of course, poetry is a fantastic way if you're uh, into the head to learn how to penetrate language and see the symbols in it. And then, of course, if you're a heart-oriented person, well, not everybody will find their way to a guru or a figure who they feel they can love. But I would start off by saying, um, look at the relationships that are in your life. And you realize that you have people in your life who you care about tremendously. Either their being in their presence turns you on, or they're funny, or they're supportive, or they're wise, or out of compassion. Maybe they're suffering in a certain way and your heart goes out to them. Follow your heart leanings to... Be vulnerable about your own emotions and don't try to make it sound like you're further along or better off than you really are when you know that behind the scene there's something you haven't addressed because that's where, you know, 
all these inquiries are going to take you. Are you willing to face what you've been avoiding all this time? And that takes you into your emotions. And of course, you can only heal what you can feel. So if you're that kind of person, then go into the devotional practices. And uh, and then, of course, as yoga says, spend time in stillness and silence. And so I guess if, if you're, I would add a fourth one, if you're a contemplative pro- type, then I would say uh, find a way to just be quiet. And there are t- many, many meditation techniques that teach you how to quiet your mind and sit still. And of course, all of those together become the way that your life path turns out. Everybody is going to act in some way. Everybody's going to think in some way. Everybody's feeling in some way. And everybody wonders. Everybody looks up at the heavens and just wonders, what is this whole thing about? So ultimately, of course, you're supposed to have a balance of all four of those paths. So it really doesn't matter which one you choose. Like they say, once you're on the highway towards the uh, towards the capital, every step you take is taking you in the right direction. So whether you choose the path of the body, the mind, the heart, or the contemplative path, they're all going to lead you to yoga. Action Tribe to access the show notes for today's episode visit my7chakras.com forward slash 139 that's my7chakras.com forward slash 139 in the confrontation between stream and the rock the stream always wins not through strength but by perseverance this is a quote by jackson brown action tribe the message is loud and clear here you are a stream that begins as a trickle high up in the mountains and your goal in life is to join the ocean and on this way you will come across many challenges of all shapes and sizes like rocks or stones or pebbles and boulders and sometimes it might feel like you will never get past those rocks and become one with the others in the ocean whenever you feel that way remember that there is power and flexibility there is power in intention and as Mr. Brown reminded us there is power in perseverance so Gabriel talk to us about a major challenge that you experienced in your life firstly how did you encounter it and then for the benefit of our listeners how did you overcome the obstacle I'm experiencing the major challenge right now in my life so I can't talk about overcoming the obstacle Mm -hmm. I can only tell you about how my path got me here about two years ago in May, uh, I had to have a prostate operation. And then about a month after that, I got hit with an inflammatory disease that basically crippled me and turned me from an uh, an old man into what seemed like to be an elderly man. Uh, It was really shocking for the iron man in me to go down for the first time in four and a half decades. So the last two years have been this ongoing recovery through the use of medication, supplements, and uh, I didn't really have to change my lifestyle, continue to do the things that I was always doing before in terms of diet and um, media and who I hang out with and what I do to recover as much as I possibly can uh, a lot of movements that have been lost because of the inflammation. So in a certain way, I've, and this has been a thing I've been role modeling to my whole community as the elder of my community, how I handle with as much grace as possible, how I can bear my own suffering with as much dignity as possible without giving up, without stopping my practice, however much I've had to modify and and remember one of the life lessons from my teacher, which is uh, within my limitation, I'm unlimited. So I've been embodying that. So I can't say that I've conquered it by any means, but I'm certainly working with it and uh, have so many people wishing healing thoughts to me. And that keeps me going because I know people uh, care about me and want me to be well. I don't see that as a pressure on me to have to get well, but as good wishes and intentions. So um, I'm, I'm working through that right now. So based on your story, first of all, thanks a lot for sharing your challenge, your story with us today. What is that one major life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Have fun. Don't waste another day in telling anybody who you care about that you love them. Call them on the phone, text them, send them an email, you know, write them a snail mail. 
but uh, there's no sense in uh, in holding back most of the time you'll realize that uh, if you would have said it you would have felt better if you would have done it you would have felt better so why inhibit yourself you know there's only one you no one can be the way you are and so in a very positive way strut your stuff and tell the people that you care about that you love them so again thanks a lot for sharing your story your challenge with us just so that this message sinks deep into our minds i'm going to restate the sequence that you just shared with us you shared that about 2 years back you had and still have a health challenge that sort of changed you from the iron man that you felt you were to an elderly man comparatively because of the medications or the change in lifestyle you mentioned a lot of movement was lost due to the medication which i'm sure is a challenge for the yogi master that you are and your practice and your lifestyle that you've enjoyed over the years but you taught us one thing today within our limitation we are unlimited and that is so powerful and yet you've taken time today as well to chat with us and share this beautiful message that resonates very clearly in our listeners mind that having fun is important because living here and now is critical so don't hold back as you mentioned but just take action action tribe make that call write that letter hug that one person who you've been thinking about and has been prolonged till now but just do it so thanks a lot for your message gabriel all right now i'd like to tell people how they might get in touch with me if they want to like follow up on this my website is yogacircle.com there you can find out we're hot linked to a lot of other nice sites there's a pull down window for me where you can hear some of my dharma talks for free and there's a connection to uh, another website there where you you can purchase some mp3 downloads if you want to and just wonderful information uh, that if people want to find a way to continue their yoga practice or contact me personally that would be the best way to do it yogacircle.com wonderful we'll have this in the show notes as well gabriel at this point what is your life's calling well first and foremost it's to be a good husband and a good father uh, and take all the things i've learned from yoga and my life experience and uh, embody them it's it's certainly e- easier when you're on the teaching stage to have people throw accolades on you and uh, you know like to say it's good to be king you know but yeah. but when i come home as my wife says uh, oh the garbage needs to go out oh master of awareness you know the <laughs> the grounding and reality of uh, trying to keep my relationship going you know we've been together 25 years we're, we're you know we're eye to eye looking at each other say till death do us part so the first thing i would say is i want to see my relationship through till till the end of my life and i want to be there for as long as i can for my girls to provide for them you know the, the next level you know even as they watch me age it's an initiation to something they're learning something about i like to think courage and and uh, how to maintain uh, your own personal integrity when you're challenged so uh, those are probably prime you know prime primary things for me and then uh, when my my younger daughter gets out of uh, college next year to we're already empty nesters but reinvent the relationship what's the next what's the next goal now that we've gotten the girls through mm-hmm. college what's the next goal so i would say uh, i don't know if that's why i came here you know if you got another minute this is one of the interesting things um i don't know whether or not i've already passed on you know not all the information but have i already inspired one person to take what it is they feel they got from me and and go pay it forward i know there are many many people who have, who have been influenced by me but do i really know if who is that one person no i so in a certain way i still keep that fire going because i never know who the person is who maybe this is the person who i'm supposed mm-hmm. to meet so that keeps me on my edge it it just you know it it reminds me of of something i heard from the author of eat pray love 
that when she first went to some affair that was like honoring her, she somebody came up to her after she just won like an Emmy or an award for, you know, the adaptation of the film or something like that and said, so now what are you going to do? And it struck her like, oh, my God, now what am I going to do? Does that mean like I've already given my best shot? But I'm a writer. What am I going to do for these next 50 years of my life? Yeah. So that's what I thought. I don't know. I don't know if I've passed on the information. So every person I meet, I'm, I'm looking to see, is this a person who I now connect? And I don't know how far it's going to go. Um, so that's kind of exciting. That you know, Like I said, I'm not sure what my life purpose is other than to be a good human being and uh, and share what I've shared with people till the day I die. Till the day I die. That's really powerful. Now, if you had to relive the memories of your life, is there a defining moment that really changed things for you? I can't reduce it to one. It's ask, it's like asking me what's your favorite Beatles song. I can't reduce it to one. <laughs> but if I had to say one thing, learning to play the guitar, oh. music into my life, sing, write, write my own songs. I would say in some way that was a, a major shift in my whole life when I was 12 years old. Thanks a lot for sharing. And with that, we have arrived at the very last round for today, the wisdom round. And our listeners know that the purpose of this rapid fire round is to take notes and take action. So are you ready? Let's do it. What is the best advice that someone's ever given you? I can't say that it's a stumper, but again, there's a lot of different pieces of advice. Uh, uh, question authority and think for yourself. So name a personal habit that keeps you going. Getting up and doing pranayama at 5.30 in the morning. So what does your morning routine look like? Or do you have a morning routine in the first place? I do. I, I wake up uh, about 5.30 and uh, I'll sit in meditation and I, uh, I usually will count 30 breaths uh, to see if my mind is concentrated. And if, uh, if I lose count, I go back and start at one again. Uh, once I've got my mind concentrated to that extent, sometimes I get scattered enough where like the whole time is spent just going back to one and starting up to see if I can do 30 in a row. But if I, most days, of course, I, I do. So once I get there, then I do various breath practices, usually based on either what I have to teach that day so I can be fresh or based on what I feel my own body needs uh, in terms of calming myself or energy if I realize it's a full day and I need to stimulate myself. That'll be a breath practice. And then after that, which could take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, I'll usually lie down in Shavasana and just regenerate. Do I would say my own version of prayers and sending well wishes, metta, loving kindness to uh, different people um, who are in my prayer circle who I feel need healing and who I want to connect with, uh, I guess we would say astrally or like on, on a subtle level. And then I'll get up and uh, drink a big glass of water and... Uh, and depending on what I have on my plate in terms of when do I have to get out of my house, mm -hmm. uh, I would you know, take a, more or less time in getting ready uh, in terms of you know, a shower daily and shave daily and um, eat lightly and then move on. And then usually, you know, in terms of routine, not in the morning, but like, you know, I, I save my asana practice. My own body biorhythm feels the best in the mid to late afternoon. So I usually don't do a heavier asana practice till four to five in the afternoon. And then again, depending on how much time I have available, it could be an hour to an hour and a half. Um, so basically, that would be my routine. Thanks a lot for sharing. Name a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners today. Again, one book is really hard. The Perennial Philosophy, Aldous Huxley. So action tribe to access today's show notes. Visit my 7 forward slash 139. That's my 7 forward slash 139. So Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us today. There were so many things that you taught us 
in this short span of time so many ways of looking at life and reevaluating what is the narrative or the story that's going on in our life you spoke about the importance of humility importance of not just growing old but becoming elderly the importance of loving not regretting and of taking action and really following our dream and being in the here and now those beautiful paradoxes that you created for us that really allow us to live life to the fullest before you go tell us one thing that you are really grateful for and tell us the best way we can find you online you shared your website so i have that uh, that's yogacircle.com but uh, for now tell us one thing that you are grateful for <laughs> all, all the people in my life my own family uh, even though i've i've gone on a very radically different path than them Uh, the fact that I just incarnated in a family that uh, I, I went through yoga and was something very, very different from them, that was a great learning experience for me. My wife and girls, of course, have probably been the most grounding and joy-producing aspect of, of my life, so more good people in my life. And, of course, my yoga community that I've been so blessed to be involved in uh, my own studio for over 30 years, and I've been so warmly welcomed across the country in many, many yoga studios. Again, all people who have opened their hearts and minds to me. So I could never say one person, but just uh, I'm just thrilled that the way I'm going to choose to spin it is that spirit is working my life that way and I brought all these people to bless me and I certainly hope that I've been able to like give them something they feel is worthy as well. That's amazing, Sir Gabriel. Thank you so much for coming on our show, reminding us about the magic of yoga, yoga asana, yoga philosophy, yoga lifestyle and taking us one step closer to a human revolution sounds great i'm in there if there's something else you know that i can do you don't hesitate to call me you were listening to my seven chakras go to my s-e-v-e-n chakras.com download your free gift get inspired and take action transform your life today 